0: Back, okay, I, I have the thumb of authority right there, and I have I have the tertiary thumb that has no significance. So that's uh, that's all we need. I'll take the glasses off so I can see, and here we're going to get started. I'm going to I have a pile of letters, a stack here to deal with, and uh, I'm going to read one of them right off the bat, and then I'll read the others as I go through the material today because they're pertinent, uh, they're germane to the material. He says this, is Paul, and I don't know where Paul is from, but uh, I, I know that he uh, shows up quite a bit. He says, thank you, Stephen Chronomonster which I thought was very good. Isn't it? it's, it's up there with uh, uh, Answer Me That Dude. My favorite HTRP for making my understanding of my salvation sure. You're a chronomonster because you made me learn to find the time and the, the time time, he says. The order of events, the first mention. What a concept of leaving a student more confused, seeking questions, and then having to listen to a sermon multiple times until I feel it it is beat into me. Some jokes don't get better on repetition. That's kind of a shot at me, apparently. My jokes don't hold up if you listen to them too many times. And then he writes, folks on dead-end streets aren't buying electric cars. It seems they have no outlet. Which I thought was kind of fun. But anyway, so. He's now to the bottom. I, I just, those are very encouraging things for me and uh, I don't know how to tell you how valuable they are. Because sometimes this job can be, I get a lot of hate mail. Let me say that. I got another one the other day and um, it's nice to have the uh, the reciprocal of that. <clears throat> I don't get a lot of hate mail. I used to, but uh, it's it's slowed down a little bit. September eleventh, two 2022, lecture discussion number 181 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and, of course, Genesis 15, where we've been for quite a while now. Well, I needed to let the people know what's happening here. We'll be back on September the 25th, and I'll explain why that's the case still. Uh, We're almost ready for winter. We've got over a cord and a half of wood cut and ready to go. Uh, We've got a whole lot of stuff done. What remains, though, is the sump evacuation system. I've got a lot of water down there still, and we, and we need about a 1,000 more pounds of gravel. Um, and, of course, I'm the administrator of this operation. I am the superintendent. And so that means there's, that's a heavy burden right off the bat. I've already got the weight of all, all the responsibility, and so that means that Lori, of those 1,000 pounds, she's got to do at least 70% of that to make it even with the weight of my responsibility. I think that's only fair. I did let the records show that uh, supper Dave agreed and the laughed. So, so there we go. I got, uh, I got uh, Simpson connectors to put in there, LTT-19s and H8s. And I've got positive placement nail- nailers, so I'll be able to do that reasonably quick, but it's still hard to crawl around down there in the muck. And then I've got a reframe 20-foot uh, fo- footing poning wall. Uh, because it has, it was framed badly. It was all toenailed. I've got to pull the toenails out and reframe them and keep the house from collapsing on me while I'm doing that. So, a little technology involved. And, and hopefully, we can endeavor to persevere. Although, as I said, crawl space uh, retrofitting is not the most most fun. It's not not for old people, and it tears us up pretty good. Uh, didn't get to the roof repair this year. Probably have to defer till next summer. And that's, of course, if the creeks don't rise and the Lord tarries. And, and the aging process relents for another year. Because then I'm getting slower. And good luck with that, huh? Okay, for those of you who are joining the Cliffsidian trek through the Scripture. Now, some people have asked me, is it really Cliffsidian or is it Cliffsidian? And I respond, well, Cliffsidian sounds more like some kind of disease. So we chose that one this previous lecture uh i'll let you leave it up to you what kind of disease that might be but i'll move on now, the previous lecture that was number 180 august 21st 2022 that was devoted to this breathtaking complication of the lord's prayer effectively all of matthew 545 all the way through to uh, matthew 634 matthew 69 through 15 that's the centerpiece that is the prayer itself and that was the point uh, that I was trying to make. The point of, uh, of uh, Lecture 180, Yay, a point. Hurrah, a point. Hooray, a point. Huzzah, wh- wh- um, um, huzzah. Huzza, wow, a point. The, the Bible, the, the point of all that is the Bible is a living book and that it is unexplainably interconnected and, and therefore it's infinitely designed. As soon as you recognize it, it's so interconnected and you cannot explain that. And it's also uh, extraordinarily complicated. And then you begin to understand an infinite mind designed and compiled this. And that gives you really, I hope I hope it gives you hope that your Bible is different. There is no book like this. And, and I should say this, if it is infinite, and I believe it's obviously so, infinity must derive, it must come from infinity. So an infinite mind made an infinite book. We were having a discussion here before we began with uh, Supper, Dave, if he exists. And he makes a point that is a very good point, is that maybe he exists and the rest of us don't. That could be a possibility. Logically, it, will, it's, it's worth, it's, it has merit. Dr. Is, is that who agree? Dr. agrees? Okay, so it's his fault then is what we're saying. Okay. Um, where am I now? Oh, Christ is the Word. This is Him. He's the Word. And Supper Day was making a comment that somebody was confused over that. He thought, no, He learned the Word. No, He is the Word. And John 1.1 1, 1 makes that very clear. This is the Word. This is the perfect that comes. And we covered that the other day or the last couple of weeks ago, uh, when the perfect comes. This is the perfect, and he is the word. It's his word. He's the one that wrote it. He just allowed human agencies. Why does he allow human agencies to participate in this process is an excellent question, one which we will not answer today. And when one grasps this singular aspect of the Bible, this inner connectivity, this, this unexplainable, infinite complexity, when you get that, then amazement results And I would add that recognition that the Bible is outside of time also comes. This book is outside of time. When the perfect comes is an amazing verse in Scripture. The author of Scripture, the one who wrote this, the Word made flesh, is in authority over time. And he proves it with what he wrote. And God is outside of time. It's important to know that. And if he wills. Now, we're going to get into the will of God here with respect to time. But for today, recognize that his frame of observation, when he's looking at something, it's from a perspective, a frame of reference that is not encumbered by time at all. It's outside of time. There's no, there's no reference that is time affected. It's not influenced or affected by time. And that's much to the dismay of Einstein, Poldowski and Rosen who think otherwise. Timelessness is like infinity. It's like consciousness. It's like life. It must Life must come from life. Infinity must come from infinity. Consciousness must come from consciousness. And timelessness must come from the one who himself is timeless. Timelessness can only come from timelessness. The only timeless one. There's only one infinite timeless one. And he's the one that wrote this book. And very important that you have that understanding when you're going through scripture. People have a tendency and I'll get into this in in a moment, to put him inside of time and restrict him by time, that is a grievous error. Teach yourself not to do that. Anyway, that's where we have been most recently. Um, And so today we're going to continue kind of where we left off, wherever that was. I have a plan. Yeah, thank you. No booing when I say things like that. My comprehensive, diabolical, intricate plan is uh, sometimes... uh, Well, okay, always digressive, discursive, fractured, pick your word. Nonetheless, it remains a a plan, tangential as it might be, or that it may be. Okay, I have been swamped with emails and letters. And all of them are loaded with these incredibly insightful, protracted questions. The audience of this discussion or this lecture series is extraordinary. I'm never... I'm always amazed. I should interject really fast. If you send me a question, there is no such thing they will tell you as a stupid question. And I'm going to tell you the opposite. There is a such thing as a stupid question. And obviously there are stupid people. Let me just throw out a few examples. The media, Hollywood, that's kind of the same thing. Hollywood is overflowing with stupid people, as is the academic ivory towers, bookface. Uh, and again, r- go read Romans one twenty-four through thirty-two. It identifies that there will be stupid people. And so, uh, again, most of the media is a mess. Twitter, which I find to be aptly named, it's uh, it's filled with twits. Yeah, the, the, that, that, those people on that. Pro- profile, I guess it's a profile, isn't it? It's some kind of platform, I guess would be better. Those people, if they're really people and they're not just computer-generated nonsense, that seems to be where the, the most hateful, angry, bitter, nasty, dumb people go. Okay. But I I rarely, if ever, receive a thoughtless question. It's really rare. It's a phenomenon that continues to this day. It's been going on for 25 years. It's really amazing. I get these kind of letters constantly. The occasional one that that throws rocks at me, but as I said. So, uh, for example, I have William. Let's start with William here. Um, He's from a non-disclosed location, which immediately reveals that William is a smart guy. That's some wisdom right there. William wished to enter the uh, atheistic evolutionary philosophy arena, which I fought for many years, and I finally said it's no longer worth fighting. And he writes this: uh, uh, Stephen A. Cronister, you forgot the monster. Should have been Crona Monster. What can you say about the idea that so many new species came to be after the flood without an evolutionary course? Yes, kind, yes, but not every species. So there had to be widespread genetic mutations that eventually ceased. That's a question. After the flood, it would be fair to say that there are no more genetic mutations these days quantifiable of insects, etc., etc. So he brought up insects, and we have to talk about insects. There's no macro or micro evolution. Just genetic mutations? That's a question. Help. I'm just trying to learn as much as I can in order to explain this to non-believers who who are at odds with the post-flood biblical account of repopulation of the earth. If you have any material that can help me, please forward thank you, William. Well, William... uh, What William is trying to do, he's wishing to arm himself with biological information that is biblically sound. That is a challenge. Good for William to take this on. It's a noble task. It requires a fundamental understanding of the general theory of evolution. I told Terry I was not going to go to the board. Ah, I lied. And that's all. You'll see that always referred to as the GTE, general theory of evolution. And it's quite important. I, I do believe that, that that uh, Bible scholars or people that are in in the Bible arena teaching the Bible, they should understand the general theory of evolution and have a not not a a cursory, but a fundamental understanding. And the journey to do that initiates with the defining of terms. You have such a thing as species fixidity. What is species fixidity? We have embryonic uh, recapitulation. We have geographic isolation. And all of those were the beginnings of the arguments, the prevailing arguments that Darwin had to face. So that's what started. So finding out how it began, very, very important. It's important, in my opinion, to to familiarize yourself with the origins of the debate, 1859. That's where you start. Because ultimately, the battle that William is trying to fight here, and, and again, God bless William for fighting. I don't know how old he is. I hope he's young. That's, that's the people that need to fight this. But ultimately the battle is going to lead to variability and adaptability within a species and properly defining species and breeds. You have to have these definitions. That's the ultimate goal as, as, as you begin to orientate yourself in this debate. And obviously breeding, the breeding of animals is, uh, that practice is an eventuality of, uh, human interference. It's humans that are doing that. You can see that with a chihuahua and a wolf. Is that wolf and that chihuahua genetically are incredibly similar, but physically they have been bred differently. And some of that, like I said, is geographic isolationism, and some of that is human interference. You see the same thing in horses, all kinds of things. Human uh, intellectual interference or intelligent interference is rampant in the animal kingdom. And William also wished uh, to investigate post-Iluvian species diversity. He said so, and and that's what he's doing. Uh, Hybridization criteria is what that is called as it applies to a species. And ultimately, where are we? That's right. If you guessed, we are Genesis 121 and 124 and 125, according to their kind, according to their kind. I'm sorry, according to their kind, according to its 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 kind. kind. Six times in in Genesis, God says this. Why did he keep repeating it? Maybe he's outside of time. And he knew William was coming. And he knew knew Darwin was coming. The evidence is, is Charles Darwin undertook that evolutionary philosophy position because he was so angry at the death of his daughter. So he was a a man that was grieving the loss of a child, trying to explain why there was so much death and evil in this world. And, of course, Genesis explains that as well, doesn't it? But God says that six times, and he's talking about Ruach Nefesh Hayah. Those are those who have the, the spirit of the breath of life in them. And they were blessed by God to be fruitful and to multiply according to their kind or its kind. That's what he says. And William wishes to get a comprehensive definition and that would be God's definition. What is God's definition of kind? That's what William is trying to do. And that is, again, a worthy endeavor, certainly. How long is it going to take William to get it? That's why I hope he's young. That's going to take years. As many of you know, as I said, referred to, I withdrew from the biological debate. I found it to be futile. I could not convince anyone, and I did not convince anyone, and uh, after a while, it just took a lot of my time, and there was no, how do I put it, no fruitful completion of it. And instead, I began to focus on Genesis 2.7, Ecclesiastes 12.7. That is, again, the spirit of the breath of life, that's consciousness, that's the mind, that's the soul, that's the spirit. I went that direction because that is absolutely impossible to explain. We can battle over whether or not a dachshund and a chihuahua or a wolf, or whether or not that bird changed colors because of the pollution in London, or moths changed color, or whatever we want to do. it harder to spot a black mouth, uh, black mouth, a black moth in a dark city so predation would naturally uh, that kind of variability would would occur ba- based on just the ability to do that uh, but the it's consciousness is it's never to be solved it's never going to be solved it's a mystery that w- that will never be solved by a human being it's the mystery of the mind it's consciousness consciousness has to be given it's just like infinity and just like life uh, Just like timelessness, consciousness must come from, must descend, must be given by one who has it first. There must be a conscious one. There has to be an origin of consciousness that comes from somebody who has it. Now, I did not make the mistake of putting that being inside of time. So the question of kind is a magnificent one. How much hybridization capability did God install in his kinds, Because he did. And that's something that has to be developed and, and discussed. Hybridization capability is in these kinds. Did the omniscient God of creation who is outside of time, I've got to keep saying that, did he anticipate, oh my goodness, that's almost blasphemous, but I can get away with it because H-T-R-P. Did he anticipate hybridization criteria? And and of course he did. Duh. So when I ask this question, did the omniscient God of creation who is outside of time anticipate hybridization criteria? That is a stupid question. Yeah. So there are many of them. So. So anyway, William, we'll be we'll be banging away at this. So thanks for the question. Now, let's see, uh, onward Christian soldiers, who's next? Uh, and, and and these questions will continue to be easy, as you could tell. They're obviously just very simple to have questions, elementary. Uh, and that's my method, the cliffside method. And easy, of course, is a relative term. <sighs> Hang on, I'm not sure where I'm going yet. I should interject. It's it's common to come across this one, who created God. Have you heard that stupid question? It's always, it, it, or who made God? Uh, and uh, the, the most obvious response to that is to present the timelessness of God. The who created, who made God arguments, the tactics, they fail immediately because they are time-based suppositions. Does that make any sense? God cannot be placed inside of time. You cannot place him inside of time. Time comes from inside of him. have to know that. Time is inside of God. It's a concept that evades the evolutionary philosophers and the majority of the theological practitioners. I will repeat it. God cannot be placed inside of time because time is inside of God. So pastors and theologians, though, have a tendency to imply that Christ was inside of time. And that's an error. That's treacherous. That's quicksand. Christ is infinite, omniscient God, the Word made flesh who walked among mankind in a manner demonstrated in Genesis 3, 8 through 10. What is that? That is Christ walking in the garden. And he walks through humanity the same way he walked in front of Adam. Genesis 3, 8 through 10. So, infinite God appears he conveys the impression that to us that he is inside of time. But you have to know we're the ones that are looking at what he is conveying and we get the impression on our own that he is inside of time. But he can't be inside of time because why? Say it all with me again. Time is inside of him. And you cannot allow that to uh, ever be violated, that precept. It's impossible. Now, when I say it's impossible... Again, I'm talking about we. We look at him inside of time. We think he's inside of time, but we don't see all of him, do we? We can't see all of him because why? We're finite and he's infinite. Einstein saw time as originating from consciousness, and so in that sense, Einstein got it right. Now he thought Einstein thought that Einstein. I guess I have to say with the accent, Einstein. He he, he thought that humanity is the consciousness from which time arises. And he was right about consciousness as a derivative. Um, He's right about consciousness being a derivative of only consciousness, but he did not recognize that time is the same way. Time is a concept. It's not physical. It can't come from a physical source. It's not physical. It's like zero and infinity. It's a mental property. A mind is required for time, and you will discover many who propose that time is an illusion. These are the same atheists who who declare that free will is a myth. Anyway, as fragile as we are, uh, strive uh, uh, to maintain Revelation 1:8 when you're in these kind of debates. Make it foremost. When you're talking about Christ inside of time, Jesus Christ says that he is the. I'm, I'm going to do it again, Terry. He says that he is the Aleph Tav. Which means he is infinite. That is, a, that is a person who is infinite. That is the Hebrew meaning of all of that. Okay? Now I have John next. What's going through these? John from Pennsylvania. Uh Amazing, John's amazing. I don't know what to say. And he uh, he wants to know, or not wants to know. He he wanted to tell me that one of the things that he was really interested in is why does God constantly do something, and that something is is why does God constantly do what is called dramatic theodicy, or role playing, if you want to do that. The entire sacrificial system, the priesthood. Aaron and the, and the sons and all of that stuff, all the slaying of the animals—that is God. That is that is role playing. Aaron is in the role of a part of the triune God, and so he does it all the time. So the question that John—he didn't want—he doesn't need me to bring it up for him, his sake. But I think he's absolutely correct. You have to know why God does all of this role playing. He's absolutely right, John. Why does he do it? Not does he do it because he does but why does he constantly do it over and over and over again why are there types in the Bible? okay again back, let me finish the Christ is the out of top he cannot be limited by time therefore he is the uncreated unmade one as Edgar Andrews so beautifully described. How can a timeless being be created? That is your question. And there comes John now. Why does this timeless being always do this role playing? Or this new grammatic theologies, theodicies. I humbly submit again uh, that it, it is a barren enterprise to consider the question, who made God? Because it is the ultimate stupid question. Okay, so we took care of John. We brought him up. We'll take care of him next week. Or we'll discuss his subject. Now I have who? Who's next? Philippe, I think. Pastor Philippe. I really enjoy getting letters from. And I wish I could pronounce his name. I believe he's in San Diego, Molal Way. I shouldn't say his name, but. Uh, Hello, Pastor Chronister. Last time I wrote to you, is exactly 10 years ago. So every 10 years, Pastor Philippe was going to write me, apparently. And yes, you did read my email and address my concerns in the lecture. Personally, I think all of your jokes are funny. Is that why I read this letter? As very easily could be, huh? Well, at least the majority. So there's a disclaimer. There's a caveat. Keep them coming. Is Bill the Cow actually a cow? No, he's not. We just think he is. Just wondering. It's weird, I know. And I send my regards to Lori. I'm sure she is wonderful, dealing with your sense of humor all this while. Amazing. Okay, here's the reasons why I'm writing you this mail. I was reading Romans 1, and to me, it's as if the whole chapter is describing angels' rebellion towards God in the beginning. But the chapter seems to be addressing men as well, simultaneously, Please help me understand what this chapter really is talking about. Salutations to everyone at Cliffside, Pastor Philippe. Okay? Did I catch that fly? Did I do it? No. But I scared him. Okay. Philippe wrote in and he was examining the chapter 1 uh, of Romans, chapter 1 of Romans. And he began to attach the fallen angelic host to that. Uh, and That's Romans 1, 18 through 32, to be specific. And I don't have time today to read all of it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now, all means what? All. Now, we assume right, right off the bat because we are so self-focused that all means us. Pastor Philippe is saying, wait a minute. What if all means all? Because all always means all. Again, you have a infinite being. All is much different to him than it is to us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. If we stop there, it's certainly that this includes the I'm sorry, the satanic rebels, because they are part of the all. But the text continues with anthropomorphism. It's actually the Greek word that we, take, we get anthropomorphism from. Anthropon anthropo is the Greek word there. And, that, and the text says of men. And that, that word is anthropo, our mankind. So therefore we do have men involved. In that, and Pastor Philippe is correct about that. There seems to be, however, both elements here. Is he right? So we have to conclude from that that Romans 1, 18-32 has an, an assignment to humanity. But does it go beyond that? How complex is the Bible? And, and Philippe is wise to notice the language is powerfully relevant to the demonic realm. And it says this, thus, these are they that know the truth. Who knows the truth better than the fallen angels? They know the truth. Yet they suppress the truth. Do the fallen angels try to suppress the truth from the other angelic realm and from humanity? Do they hide the truth? Why do they conceal the truth? Keep in mind the truth is a person, right? John fourteen six, I am the way. I am the truth. And they suppress the truth. So they're suppressing Christ. The literal translation here is to hold down, pushing the truth of Christ to the ground so that none see him. Our job is to lift him up as much as we can. Again, that's why the crucifixion, he lifts himself up. That that crucifixion portrays this lifting up of Christ that he does. Obviously, Romans 1, 18 through 32 is welded to Matthew 6, 5 and Matthew 23. These are the hypocrites. These are the Pharisees. Woe to them for, for what they are doing. They are suppressing the truth of Christ. Okay. These are the serpents, the brood of vipers, who cannot escape the condemnation of hell, Matthew 23:33. So yes, man is involved in Romans 1. And, and again, these, these these serpents, these brood of vipers, they are they who are beautifully outward. Their outward beauty is amazing. They adorn themselves. They look fantastic. They look very white. They were clean. They, they portrayed themselves as clean. But inside, they're full of dead bones. That's what the Bible says, Matthew 23, 27. And their father is Satan himself. That's John 8, 44. So again, we have Satan involved in the suppressing of the truth. And and you can see Philippe's point, yea, a point, especially with Romans 121. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Who is more guilty of that than the fallen angels? How long did the fallen angels glorify God? Nor were they thankful, it says, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts became darkened. Again, let's apply that to the fallen host. Changing the glory of the imperishable, incorruptible God into an image of corruption. Who is the image of corruption to the Fallen angel, who wants to be the Most High? Who wants to put his throne on the mountain? Satan himself. So they have that changing the glory of the imperishable, incorruptible God into an image of corruption. And that would, of course, easily apply to Satan, wouldn't it? You again, you can see what Philip's doing here. He's looking at this, going, "Holy mackerel! I'm a child. How can I not see this?" And essentially, an image of corruption is a is a created thing. Now the Exodus twenty four says it's a carved it's something that man carves, but it's also a created thing, and Satan is a created thing. He is not an imperishable God, incorruptible imperishable God. And then of course we have Romans one twenty five, exchanging the truth for the lie. The truth is is Christ, right? Again, John four fourteen six, the truth is God. He's a person. The lie is Satan. So the angels definitely exchange the truth that is Christ for the lie that is Satan. And Satan is the lie. He is the lie. And of course the Antichrist also the lie. For this reason God gave them up to their vile passions. Do the fallen angels, let me help you out here, Jude 6, Genesis 6, 2-3, through 3, do the fallen angels, the sons of God, do they have vile passions? Did they have vile passions? Absolutely, they did. For even the females, it says Romans one twenty-six. The word translated women is literally females there. For even the females exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Is that Genesis 6? That's absolutely Genesis 6. So again, we find this congruency, this, uh, this I don't know how to describe it. It absolutely is connected here. I don't have uh, the vocabulary to even say how much of this is is amazingly tied to the fallen host. Obviously, the the fallen angels knew God and yet they blasphemed him. Why did they do that? They knew him. It didn't matter. It also says in Romans there, uh, likewise also the males burned with lust for one another. So we have been given just a glimpse into what occurred in Genesis 6 here, in Jude 6. But I can obviously say that it is in Romans 1. Genesis 6.5-6.7 tells us the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I have to do it again. Great. What do I need to do? Who called it great? The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of every intent of the thoughts thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the day. How great is great. When God says the wickedness of man was great in the earth, how great was it? He goes on to say and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil only evil. What does only mean? There's nothing but evil. It is only evil. There was no what. If there's only evil, what's missing? How do I get to a state of only evil? Why did mankind be described this way, became only evil? Now, if I described an only evil being that became only evil after knowing God and knowing the truth, They believe the lie and they become only evil. Can I attach that to the angelic realm that fell? Absolutely, I can. You can see again, it fits perfectly. Obviously, we have to consider God's definitions here. How does God define as great? What does God define as great? Wickedness. How great is this wickedness? Keep to the forefront that every thought of man's thoughts, that's the actual literal translation, every thought of man's thought, was only evil all of the day. When you get into the Greek, that's how it, means, it goes. I'm sorry, the Hebrew. Most Bibles try, try translate the Hebrew as intent and continually, but it's not. It's every thought of man's thoughts was only evil all of the day. Okay, so great wickedness, only evil, every thought. Again, ask how did that happen and why did it happen? How many people were only evil in the pre-flood world? And how did they get that way and why were they that way? Imagine if you're able, a human being who only has evil thoughts, unceasingly and constantly. Every thought is only evil. Now, I have thoughts all the time. Most of them are not valuable. Like I'm thinking about this pen. I would say that that's not an evil thing thought. I want to pull it out and mark on stuff. That's just dumb. I, if somebody has only evil thoughts. And Philippe is suggesting that this is unmistakably simultaneously a perfect description of the Revelation 9, 1 Peter 3:19, Jude 6, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 11 evil fallen angels. And he, I believe, is correct to do that. Second Peter two ten chronicles the evil of dignitaries. That's what it says. There's an evil of dignitaries. The filthy conduct of the exceedingly wicked. Uh, the exceedingly wickedness of the males of Sodom. Genesis thirteen thirteen. God says the the evil of Sodom is exceedingly wicked. Now we have lots of people that think they know what that means, but I'm going to say to you, it's exceedingly wicked. Second Peter. Uh, Two aligns with Genesis 19, the depravity of Sodom, Judges 19, the sons of Belial, all of that. What evil did the males of Sodom exceed? Because they exceeded the evil of something. What evil did they exceed? The males of Sodom did something that exceeded with the previous level of evil, 2 Peter 2. And again, that places the fallen angels side by side with the sons of Belial. And by how much did they exceed the, the evil? They set the record. Here's the record of great wickedness. We exceeded that. So, again, I have the fallen angels side by side with the sons of Belial. Again, Second Peter 2. Peter, the Holy Spirit, that's the, that's the Holy Spirit using the agent of Peter, compares uh, the sons of Belial with the fallen angels and concludes that they have equality. That's what Second Peter does. And dignitaries is of particular interest. The literal Greek is glorious ones. So these are the former glorious ones. Sometimes rendered as angelic majesties. Second Peter says those are those who are the same as the Sodomites, so that we have some that are the same as the Sodomites, the sons of Belial. They don't tremble, they don't hesitate to blaspheme the glorious ones. So the glorious ones and the sons of Belial, the sons of Belial will blaspheme and accuse and revile the glorious ones or the dignitaries, if you wish, the angelic majesties. So you have to read this. I'm just blasting away here. So you have to read it to really understand what Philippe was doing here. But the faithful angels, they do not bring before Lord, the Lord God a reviling judgment against them. That's Second 2 Peter 2.11. So I have three groups I have the sons of Belial, which Belial is the name of Satan, 2 Corinthians 6. I have the glorious ones, or the glorious majesties. And then I have the angels. And for some reason, the sons of Belial, they accuse, they're not afraid to accuse the glorious majesties. But the angels will never accuse the glorious majesties. Now, Think about what that means. Again, your Bible will probably say dignitaries. I have angels that are unfallen. I have faithful angels. And they will not bring accusations against the fallen angels, the glorious majesties. But the sons of Belial will. This almost looks like I have a divided issue here. I have sons of Belial, which are sons of Satan, attacking the, the fallen angels, who are also uh, who have established Satan as their leader. It seems like I have a, a nice scene or inner nicene issue here. And again, that's Second 2 Peter two eleven. Now, now you know why Michael would not rebuke Satan. Because he won't. Why not? Why won't he? I should at this point say, Hi Val Joe and Hi Susie. Because they're still dealing with that, I'm sure. You're going to deal with that many, many years. Good luck. Wish I could help. But Michael would not rebuke Satan. Why wouldn't he do that? And God considers a rebuke of Satan to be what? A reviling judgment. You do not Revile, judgment, Satan. You don't do it. Or his fallen angels. But the sons of Belial will, and they're the sons of Satan. So what's going on here? For today, all we can do with Philippe today, sorry Philippe, is we can conclude that Romans one 18 through 18-32, and Genesis 6, and Jude 6, are they are locked up. They're conjoined, they're intermeshed. And that position can be defended. Certainly, Peter, the true apostle, a true apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, he fastens them together. He commingles all of the pieces into a singular entity. He allows us and Philippe to have a measure of confidence when we do the same. The key question is actually a two-part key question. Why do the angels, the faithful angels, refuse to accuse the wicked demons? They will not bring reviling judgments against them. Why won't they do it? And Satan does what? He does the opposite of that. What's he called? He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's constantly accusing them. And he has no such prohibition. Satan rushes to bring reviling judgments. Job 1, Job 2, Revelation 12, 10. The sons of Belial, the sons of Satan, 2 Corinthians 6, 15. They're filled with wickedness. They're openly defiant. They're self-willed. They're despising. They're hating. They hate the authority of God. They bring forth reviling judgments against the fallen angels, the glorious ones. Why do they do it? It's one thing to know they do it, but why? If you find why, if you figure out why, then you're in a really good position. And that's what I would say to you, any of you who are doing this. Why do they do this? Why does God consider this act to be heinous? i got evil things here. i got evil things attacking evil things. The angels won't do it and God says that's bad. For the evil things to attack other evil evil things. How does that make sense? And I answered, uh, again, I'll ask you this way. Why does God consider this act to be heinous, the act of a depraved, debased, malignant person? That's what he says. If you do what the sons of Belial do to the angels that are the glorious majesties, the fallen angels, then you are a depraved, debased, malignant person. That's what God says. Does that make sense to anybody? well it does i actually answered the question in the question i'm good at that you just have to go well, how did he do it and i'm so humble and just when you thought it couldn't get worse it's like a bad penny it's like ringworm it's like black mold here comes bill the cow yeah oh my goodness he he decided i got to i got to enter this he's on the list he returns with more peculiarities, and and he's not a cow. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he is a cow, and we're all not. I mean, that's logical. And usually, it's children that scream out at me, make him stop. That's what they yell at me. And Bill the cow is quickly reaching make him stop territory. He's right there, and he's pounding on the door. And that's obviously a great honor, I have to say. And Bill was interjecting another avenue into all of these things today. Some might characterize the new boulevard as the same street, just reversing directions. And I I refrain to offer an opinion on that. You all can uh, vote after I lay it all out here. Climactically, the issue resolves around the conditions of the intermediate state. That's what Bill wants to do. That's where the climax to his question is, is what are the conditions of the intermediate state? Also, he wanted to get into the Nephilim. Condition And when you get into the Nephilimic condition, the way he wants to do it, the uh, <coughs> well, when you do that, you have the implications of insects. And we have to talk about insects at some point, because they are a powerful thing to know about. And that's where, I, was it William that William was getting into insects? Yeah, good for, for William. We have phylum prophyra, we have jellyfish, we have sea anemones. And the, and the light like, creatures that do not have respiratory. They, the, uh, I, I watch a lot of English medical uh, lectures, and they say respiratory. They also say vitamin. And I think respiratory and vitamin is superior to respiratory and vitamin. Hence, chlycidion. But anyway, we have, we have phylum prophyra. Uh, they don't have lungs or gills. And so, how do they breathe? Well, water is what? It is oxygen and hydrogen. Hydrogen oxygen, right? And proliferate, they have a gas exchange mechanism. And if you're already asleep and you're already drooling, drooling and boredom has come upon you, it's not my fault, and you're going to boo, you're going to boo Bill the cow. He deserves it for all of this stuff. He is just out there going like this. Let's throw a big mess into Cliffsidians and see how they do. Why must we consider phylums, Platyhelminthes, molecula, anthropoda? Why do we have to do that? Because phylum cordota cordata, I'm sorry, has a brain, it has a spinal cord, and it has lungs. So we have to know, I have that phylum, and that has a brain, spinal cord and lungs. And so when we do that, we find ourselves at Genesis 2, 7, 7, 15, 7 22, the breath of the spirit of life, alongside Genesis 1, 20, 1, 21, 1, 1, 1 30, which is the Ruach Nefesh Hayah. We're trying to describe that. That is Cordata. Okay? And And uh, you, you know all of that is the, is the conclusion of Solomon's Ecclesiastes. He wraps it all together, uh, the lungs, the brain, and the heart. I'm sorry, the lungs, the brain, the spinal column, the lungs, the heart. He wraps all of that together and he says it returns to the Lord. spirit returns to the Lord. So he's saying about this breath of the spirit of life is tied to a particular group of creation in the animal kingdom, in the human kingdom. So that's Ecclesiastes 12.7. That might not have made any sense, but hopefully it will. The breath of the Spirit of life returns to him who gave it. And who did he give it to? He defines them as neroah nafesh, shayah. That's who he gave it to. And it comes back to him. And it it just so happens that we see this relationship between the brain, the spinal column, and the lungs. And the lungs would be the breath, right? And we have this relationship between the brain and the heart. In fact, more logic information is coming from the heart to the brain than the inverse. So that's important to know. So, why does the spirit of life return to him who gave it? i got to look at the time. I'm doing great. Let's sing the Yay Me song. The breath of the spirit of life returns to him who gave it. Why did he give it? He gave it. We know he gave it. We know how he did it. We know what he did. Why did he do it? And why does it return to him? Well, he gave it because he has it. It's a, it's a trait of him. Again, consciousness must come from consciousness. I almost had him there. That's right. We're back to Ecclesiastes 12. conscious thing is going to get me. Is Satan a fly? It's possible. Possible then. Lord of the Flies. Yeah. What's the difference between the Lord of the Flies and the Lord of the Rings? Is there any difference? Never mind. He is the Spirit of Life, John 14, 6. He owns the Spirit of Life. It's His property. There was a radio announcer for many, many years who said, "Talent on loan from God. Well, your Spirit is on loan from God. He gives it to you. And he takes it back at your physical death. Why does he take it back? What's he going to, It is his. He's every right to do it. Does God have a right to rule over you? It's his life. His life is in us. It, life comes from life. You know what? There's no nothing where life cannot come from non-life. Sorry, not really. Fake sorry. He owns the spirit of life. It's his property. Why does he want it back? Because he does. We go through this intermediate state process. Anyway, Bill began our conversation with the murdered children, and you might have guessed what 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 is that all about? Why do we have murdered children entering into the arena? Why is Job 3:11 through 19 on the same table with tapeworms, sponges, spiders, scorpions, and jellyfish? Because if I asked you what is an insect, what is a jellyfish, what is a tapeworm, what is a spider, what's a sponge? Are these biological machines? Do they have the breath of the spirit of life? Does their, does their life go back to him who gave it? And you start talking about biological machinery, you're in real trouble. If you say, that's a biological machine, and that's not, guess who's in that discussion? Guess who says you start celebrating? Anyway... Job 3.11-19 through 19 is, as you know, making it very clear, clear. he removes all, all dispute. Uh, murdered children, children that die in the womb, children that die from any and all causes, instantly upon death their soul spirits are transmitted to heaven. Matthew 19.14. You can't get around it. Christ makes a powerful statement. Suffer the little children. He says, suffer the little children. What's he mean by that? And forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So he is saying, they're going to heaven. The immediate question then, where are they in the kingdom of heaven? And what about Abraham's father, Genesis 15, 15? Because he tells Abraham, you'll be going with your father. Where, where's the father's? Well, the, Most people will say paradise, but Christ emptied paradise and now they're in heaven. So where in heaven are they? I want to know. What's their address? Do they have an address? Do they have a place where they're at? And none of those, neither of those were Bill Dequale's question. If he's listening right now, he's going, I didn't ask any of this stuff. What are you doing here? <laughs> those questions that I just asked are concerning the location of the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21. I just thought I'd throw them in because it's fun. And then I get to ask, when was the new city of Jerusalem built? When was it revealed by God? Matthew 25:41. That's the lake of fire. Did he build the new city of Jerusalem at the same time as the lake of fire? Is there anybody currently in the new city of Jerusalem? That's what I'm asking. When he emptied paradise, where did he put all of those people? Where are the where are the children? And then if I'm going to ask that, when was the prison of the glorious ones constructed? Second Peter 2 4? Because there's a prison for the glorious ones, right? Christ went to preach to them that are in prison, and they are the they are the glorious majesties. They're the fallen angels. They're in prison. So if I got a new Jerusalem, I have a prison. And and there, it's a prison where they're chained. Prison of chains for the Jude 6, Genesis 6, w- w- wicked ones, Revelation 9. They're chained in. So they have chains around them. Why do they have chains around them? Are angel spirits? Are chains physical? Why do I, are there spiritual chains? Why do these spiritual beings have chains? And you would have to say, I think, that there must be, there would be an equivalent in the third, third heaven. If I've got a prison of change, then I have to have a place that is not a prison. And what would that be? What's disclosed? Well, again, I'm suggesting that that's the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21. When was it there? A lot of people think that it hasn't made yet. That doesn't make sense because I have the lake of fire, I would have the new city of Jerusalem. They are opposites, they're reciprocals. And he made the lake of fire very early on. As we, can, I, I suggest it's obviously connected to Genesis 3, the, the uh, sentencing of Satan. How about this prison that he made? When did he make that? When did he make torments? When did he make paradise? How does this all fit together? So is the new city of Jerusalem, is that where the believing saved have died and waiting? And that's, Are they in the new city of Jerusalem right now? And if they are, what are the capabilities of the intermediate state? Because they're in an intermediate state. They're waiting for resurrection. But how much capability do they have? Notice that the demons have chains on them again. The demons have tremendous capabilities, don't they? They can, they can, in Revelation 9, look at what they're capable of. They're going to physically attack humanity in Revelation 9. And obviously there's a great deal of, of uh, possession. So, notice that there's this complement to paradise, that being torments, Luke 16, 19-31, where the evil ones, they await their judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Are they chained down there? We know they don't have water. Bill, again, did not ask any of that. He proposed the issue of free will as it applies to the instantly saved children. He said, wait a minute here. Those children are instantly saved. How does that affect the free will? That's his question. You see, an issue is not, and the issue is not Bill here. It's really, so don't get him wrong. He's got it right in a lot of respects. But there's others who, I can't name them. They've got to remain nameless to protect them from their own stupidity. But there's a whole bunch of them out there that do not believe that all children go to heaven. And so the free will of children in heaven is not an issue for them. They don't believe the children have free will either because Christ or God condemns them to hell. That's their position. There was never a free will decision by those children, they're gone. And of course that's that is a level of stupidity I can't even begin to analyze. But back to Bill here, he's on the he's the reciprocal of the stupid people. Is eternal life forced upon these children? In other words, do the children choose to believe Christ? John eleven twenty five. Or has God removed their free will and assigned unto them salvation? So He, And you know there are people that believe he does that. You're grinning over there, don't you? Never thought about children in heaven, did you? That's Bill's fault. Did God remove their free will and assign them uh, salvation without their knowledge or consent? And you should remember that my past uh, digressed rants with respect to the common teaching that God sends children to, to hell I think that is vacuous and insipid. Uh, Anyone who thinks that the Lord God of Heaven has condemned children to the lake of fire—and it's not a straw man—they really do say it. I'm not saying that they don't. I'm not bringing up something that nobody says. They say it all the time. It remains a common teaching, and and it's nonsense. It's human thinking. God does not think like us. Isaiah 55:8 never has been in the thoughts of God to do that. And you have to understand it. Anyway, Wilder Penfield, the great neurosurgeon who wrote The Mystery of the Mind, concluded that the mind, the consciousness, the something hidden, he would call it, had complete function subsequent to the death of the body. He said that mind cannot be destroyed by physical death. And we've talked about that many times. But he wanted to—he couldn't figure out what the energy source was. Not, he not that he couldn't figure it out. I'm sure that he did. But he didn't write about it. Um... But he knew that there had to be an energy source for the mind. And, of course, that energy source is John 8, 12. And that, that's Jesus Christ. says, I'm the energy source. I'm the energy source of life. That's what he says. And he resolved that question. So, here we go. How much capability does the mind possess? Luke sixteen nineteen through 31. i got Abraham and Lazarus. And they're being seen by the evil rich Pharisee. Now, that is an evil person there. Don't get that wrong. And all of them can speak and be heard by one another. So I have people who are in the intermediate state, their mind, the conscious state, no body, and yet they can be seen and they can be heard. And they can be thirsty. And they can be not thirsty. Because if one is thirsty, what's the other one? Not thirsty. And angels can carry them. They can transport the persons of Abraham, Lazarus, and the Pharisee. They do. And that's very clear when he says that who's doing the harvest. Similarly, Samuel, Moses, Elijah are recognizable and able to communicate. They look like Samuel, they look like Moses, they look like Elijah, and they they, they got clothing in the intermediate state, first Samuel twenty eight, three through sixteen and Matthew seventeen, one through eleven. Thus it's logical now, isn't it, that to assume that children have equal proficiency. So, if all the rest of these have capabilities like that, then the children that are murdered, that die from whatever cause, that are instantly in heaven, and animals, have similar capabilities. They will all be the same. They would be somewhere doing something. And C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He did a marvelous job of explaining what's what's going on. So, the obvious question is, do the children in heaven develop intellectually? Because all these others have intellectual development, so they they maintain their intellectual capabilities, and so now I have children whose intellectual ca- capabilities have to be developed. Do they develop? Why wouldn't they? Are you saying they wouldn't develop? Are they just blobs? There's no thought process. Who would teach them? How good is their teacher? Do they advance? Do they attain majority? Would be the question. Do they grow? And and whatever their intermediate state is, does it change? How does he do it? Keep in mind this. Satan fell within a perfect environment, a pristine state. There was no sin when Satan fell. There was none. Except he was the first to display wickedness. So when he, he was the first one and only one that had sinned and rebelled. First one. And by, by, I think, uh, uh, some depth of time, he's the only one. He has to go in traffic, according to the traffic, uh, 28, 16 of Ezekiel, right? So he had no one to influence him to do it. It was all inside of himself. And again, for a time, I believe, a time, only Satan was corrupted. So, and what does that have to do with anything you're asking? Adam and Eve were surrounded by Satan and his army. They were never in a pristine environment. They were never in a perfect condition. There was sin. Obvious Satan came and, and deceived the, the woman and probably attacked Adam relentlessly, much like he did Job. He would use the same tactics, I believe. So we have Eve was deceived by an outside force, an outside source, uh, but Satan. Is different. Sin and rebellion were established. Uh, first uh, Timothy two fourteen, but and Eve was deceived by Satan. Adam was not, and Satan was not. They were not deceived. So Adam and Satan are the two that weren't deceived. Eve was the deceived one. So consider that for a second. So our children in heaven, all the residents in heaven, are not in a perfect environment now. We got Revelation twelve. There's war in heaven. So there's not a perfect environment up there. Finally, we got this question of the Nephilim. Are the souls of the Nephilim the ones that Christ cast into the swine in Matthew eight, twenty eight through thirty three, and don't dismiss this, it's quite popular, though I submit it's completely refuted by Ecclesiastes twelve seven. Are the souls of the Nephilim the the demons who infect the swine? Because people say that often. They say that the Nephilim, that what we see as demon possession, those are really the souls of the Nephilim. Now, and again, don't dismiss it. It's it's out there everywhere. But I think that it's refuted by Ecclesiastes 12.7. And if you take on the aspect that the Nephilim are only demons, all Nephilim are demons, then you have a problem because you're in the same insect problem that you have with biological machinery. If you say the demons, or the, I'm sorry, that the Nephilim had no choice but to be a demon, then they have no free will. They have no free will. Do they, have, do they have existence? So you have problems here. So you have the biological machine argument that you made them the same as spiders and sponges and jellyfish. Automatons. And can you do that? I don't think you can. But they think you can. And they don't like that I don't think you can. And they come firing at me. And they will really come firing at me now. So, shoot your best shot, boys and girls.